listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It feels really nice to be back. I am so sorry we've been gone for a little bit, or I have at least. After San Francisco Pride, my brain was fried. I'm sure you know by now, or if you've read the media or headlines, it was a seven-hour-plus parade broadcast. (laughs) So... Yeah, I'm a little, I was a little, little burnt. Anyway, it's Monday, July 6th. I got the date right. I know what the date is. For a minute there, I was losing my mind. Our producer, Jax, is in studio. Thank you for getting my head screwed on tighter after Pride. Seven and a half hours. Seven and a half hours. I don't know who would sit there and watch seven and a half hours of a gay parade. I mean, I'm not saying that it was completely boring. There were some cool floats for sure. The Netflix float was super fun. They actually had two characters from Orange is the New Black. The woman who plays Gloria in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. the other one who plays, uh, I don't know all their names, but I know their faces. But on top of having the actresses from Orange is the New Black, there was also, um, you know, they had uh, some local drag queens in their float, like Hecklina here in San Francisco. That was really cool. That is very cool. But then seven and a half hours. (laughs) Seven and a half hours. I mean, a lot of people are blaming it on Apple. Apple had 8,000 people or so march in their contingent, which is phenomenal, right? When you think about the company and you think about the employees who want to come. I mean, how can you say no to people who will fly themselves here to San Francisco to say they want to march in the parade? I I don't know that you can say no. Um, But, you know, I don't. I also don't think that it was what held up the uh, parade so long. I think the reality is that our community has grown, and it's grown to include, you know, these tech corporations, these startups, uh, the community, uh, people there to demonstrate, people who have messages. So it's seven and a half hours. <laughs> I mean, it. You can point to, it and that's our progress. You know, the parade started as a protest, and now it's seven and a half hours. And right. you can look at that in really a really good light. Exactly. I found a really good article. You know, from someone who wrote on sfis dot com, who mentioned the seven and a half hour uh, parade. They also have a, a great link if you want to watch the parade. It's out there. You know, I think if you just Google San Francisco Pride Parade or go to prideradio dot com, they have it up. Uh, if you are, you know, what did the guy say in the article? If you're bedridden or you happen to find yourself <laughs> like poisoned or you can't go anywhere there, just turn on the pride parade. Anyway, enough of that. And uh, for those who are still celebrating pride, happy pride to you all. I'm very, very happy to be back today. Uh, we got the chance to talk to some really cool people over the pride uh, season. And, you know, some of these celebrations bring out some incredible celebrities. Um, like for me, example, for, for me, the, uh, for example, you know, the opportunity to speak to Laverne Cox was fun. I mean, gosh, it was, cr- it was so mind blowing, um, you know, t- to have a discussion about trans lives, black lives, income inequality, you know, being authentic, being yourself. That was really cool. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. 
Today we have a special interview for you that we did, and that was roughly during around the uh, uh, Pride season. We interviewed Clary Walters. She's the author of Out of Orange, a memoir. She's uh, actually known as the real Alex Vaz. So Laura Prepon plays her character, and I say that loosely just because I don't think that the Alex Vaz portrayed in Orange is New Blacks is, is exactly the story of Clary's, but it absolutely is an inspiration. So let's jump into the interview. Clary, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I spent a lot of time reading your book. I'm probably at this point, I read it twice. You have a memoir out, Out of Orange. So this is this is the real deal. This is the real Alex Voss, everybody. It's funny. I want to start with um, your name, you know, Alex Voss. Clary Walters. <laughs> Obviously, Alex Voss sounds like, you know, some sex goddess. And Clary Walters sounds like my next door neighbor that I played Chinese right. jump rope with <laughs> or, or dodgeball. Right. You know, it's so cute. So Clary, Clary is your real name. Yep. Clary is my real name. I had nothing to do with the creation of the name Alex Voss, though I think it's an awesome name. Yeah. Um, let's go, you know, let's go back to, I mean, before we get into the historical pieces, right, of the the real Alex Vaz or you and kind of how your story now is part of this incredible, this huge franchise, Orange is the New Black. Um, when you found out, you start the book out, you know, with the with you finding out about Orange is the New Black, the series, and and, you, you know, it's like you go through this panic attack and all of a sudden you are like, there's this huge microscope on my life or, or my life is on the big screen. There's millions of people watching it. Describe that experience again for uh, people tuning in for the first time. Well, the first time I realized that I had um, some changes coming in my life, I was sitting watching TV late at night with my mom um, and a commercial came on that looked to me like I wasn't really paying attention. It was like a soap commercial or a shampoo commercial. And then I heard this um, buzzer noise and the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. And I was like, oh, and, and this like slamming door. And I think it's PTSD or something, but I recognized it instantly and looked up at the screen and started paying a little bit more attention to this shampoo commercial. And there, and it was, Piper in prison or Piper's Piper Chapman, but it was instantly clear that this was um, not, it was no longer just going to be like a literary issue in a book that Netflix was a entity to um, be respected as much as TV. And then I saw Laura prep on wearing my signature black glasses and I realized, oh, good, she's playing me. My life is absolutely about to change. I had no idea whether it was going to change for the good or for the, you know, for the bad. Um, I was still on paper at the time, which is, it's probation, basically. And so I couldn't have any communication with Piper or an indirect or direct communication with her. Um, so that probably accounts for my having had no uh, heads up that it was coming directly from Piper. Um, but basically it was a shock and the, the catch to it was, you know, it's novel. It's awesome to be portrayed by Laura Prepon, but 
when you are on probation and you're at a job that took you two years to secure because of a stupid felony conviction that you have to like check the box. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little scary, you know, Yeah, having found a company that would let me get back into software, um, even with a felony conviction, I wasn't sure if having a infamous lesbian drug smuggler who has current who's having sex in their living room um, <laughs> might not be a little bit a little bit more than their right uh, appetites could take. So here's the interesting thing to me. I mean, uh, in the memoir, there was a time in which I think this was like even after your first run um, coming back from Paris and successfully smuggling drugs for the first time and in, in, with your first quote unquote paycheck or your first pay. I think the first thing you wanted to do was buy, I think it was like a MacBook Pro or something. You wanted to right. be a writer. And so it's just kind of ironic that, uh, you know, throughout all these years, you had the dream, you know, you had the intention of being an author of some sort. And here's your life on screen and someone else wrote a book about your life. Like, how did that make you feel? Well, Piper wrote a book about her life. And in all honesty, I barely graced the pages of her book as Nora Jansen. It was Jen G. Cohen's decision, I'm assuming, to... Um, you know, pull Nora Jansen out of the pages and put her front and center as a pivotal role in the um, the, the plot of Orange is the New Black, the series. So as far as Piper's book goes, I was thrilled. I was really happy for her that she had done that. And the first time I knew about Piper's book. I was in the backyard gardening and my sister called me and told me to turn the radio on. And there was our ex co-defendant, my ex lover on fresh air talking about a book that she had just published. And we, I mean, that felt like almost as much my victory as it was hers. Certainly. I mean, it wasn't my victory, but, um, seeing one of us, one of the co-defendants finally making it to the light at the end of the tunnel, was um was like uplifting you know okay hmm. i'm gonna get there it's gonna be a bit longer but i am gonna get there mm-hmm. and my my sister felt the same way so you know of course we came down from our relation instantly and did some due diligence to make sure that we weren't being thrown under the bus which yeah. we were not right but, well it's interesting um, uh, in your memoir you know hester your sister uh, plays a, a a pivotal actual role, you know, in your life in terms of being involved in some of the drug smuggling, but smuggling, but in Orange is the New Black, I, I don't think that she has a role. No, she there's they don't have her portrayed at all in the in the series. Which, Which let's is get, interesting. It is interesting. So let's get to, you know, let's get to the, the real story and kind of, you know, we get it. Yes, Orange is the New Black is inspired by a book that Piper wrote and, um, you know, but it doesn't necessarily mean like every small little thing or every detail uh, in Orange the New Black is real. So the real story is that, you know, you got involved in drug smuggling uh, through your sister who was dating a Nigerian drug lord, Aleya, right? Alaji. Alaji. I'm sorry. I I don't have... Thank you. I know. It sounded, I don't know, to me in my mind, I was like, it sounded godlike, so I went there. But Alaji. 
Um, so Alaji is, a, you know, was her boyfriend at the time. And so, you know, your sister didn't even know that you had signed on for a run to, to do to do this, right? No, she didn't. We had a little bit of difficulty with my decision. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, you kind of explain like what drove you into it. I, I mean, but uh, you tell it, you know, via your story. Like, why did you get into it in the first place? I mean, you know, was it money? I didn't I don't think that it was. I think that it was a lot of things. Maybe being young. Yeah, uh, it was a comedy. Yeah. Of, um, it was a perfect storm. Um, first of all, I didn't know it was drugs. I thought it was diamonds that were being smuggled. And that to me just sounded James Bondy, Midnight Express kind of cool and didn't really register as seedy or dangerous. Um, but when I found out it was drugs, it was a little bit too late to turn around and start over. And the real story was that, you know, because some might look at Clary Walters and hear this true story. Okay, she's the real drug smuggler as if, you know, you had chosen uh, this profession <laughs> or chosen this this life. But, you know, what ended up happening was even after that first successful run, you kind of got caught into it because Alaji just would not let you go, which happens a lot, right, in these types of situations. They become reliant on their people. And, uh, you know, so it sounded like you were threatened or, or at least Hester might have been threatened having been, was, you know, loving. It was very tricky what he did. He didn't threaten me. He threatened indirectly. He did this with all of his people. Um, he would not directly threaten you. You threaten somebody you love, which I think is extraordinarily brilliant because if he had simply threatened me, I would have been like, okay, well, let's go out with a bang. Bye. But threatening someone I love, especially someone as much as that I loved as much as my sister, come on, I would do anything for her. And the, the thing was, is the the threats were indirect. They were veiled, but the problem was I, I could never be certain. It's like if I walked away, there was a very substantial chance that absolutely nothing would happen. But I wasn't gambling with my safety or my life, and that made all the difference in the world. That's right. That's right. And then you end up, uh, you know, the second, third, fourth run having been involved in it. You know, it was, I was something popped in my mind as I was reading this, uh, your memoir, um, Out of Orange, in that – it seemed like you were so open to let people <laughs> know what you were doing. But, I mean, you were only open to, like, some of your closest friends who ended up being a part of this, uh, I guess, smuggling ring, right? But you you involved people because you felt that that was the only way that you might be able to get out of it. So explain that whole deal and how it grew, um, you know, from your perspective. I was convinced after the second run that I had – exhausted my luck that there was no way that I was ever going to make it through another run and yet I had to make another run and I realized that the the drug lord didn't care if they lost an individual or they got busted that was the cost of doing business but I didn't really want to be that individual that was the cost of their doing business so I had this great idea and actually a friend of mine and I had a great idea let's Let's let our friends carry it for us. They can make the money. They'll get to travel. And we won't introduce them to Elaji. We won't even let Elaji know that they exist. And that way, Elaji will think that we've continued to, you know, comply with his requests. 
his requests will be um, handled and everyone will be happy. I had no idea it was illegal to um, even to be anywhere near that transaction or that, you know, it was sort of like, I thought I was handing off complicity as long as long as I was handing off um, I don't even know how to explain right this. like you like, like you weren't exactly yeah. touching the thing then you know maybe it, here's it, an analogy somebody comes to you and says hey do you want to buy a bag of pot no but you know what my friend might want some mm-hmm. that's what I felt mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Um, and you're right I was very open about what I was what I had done when I returned because each time I returned I was convinced that that was it. I was never going to do it again. And so it was sort of like an anecdotal, like, tell your grandchildren story at that point. Except being gay, I'll never have grandchildren. So I had to tell the entire community of Northampton <laughs> instead. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll continue our discussion with Cleary Wolters. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. You're listening to the best of the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to the best of show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us this beautiful Monday, July 6th. I'm Michelle Miao. Jax, our producer, is in studio. We're playing an interview we did with Clary Walters. She's the author of her new memoir, 
Out of Orange. And uh, her story is actually, uh, she is the real Alex Vaz, played by Laura Prepon on Orange is the New Black. Let's continue our discussion. Uh, let's fast forward to, you know, your relationship with Piper. You met Piper at a bar. This is after maybe the second, third run or so. Um and, uh, you know, she becomes close in your circle and uh, eventually then being involved in, you know, what you were involved in. Um, but, uh, you know, you call her your ex-lover and not ex-partner or something. So is it true that the relationship re- really, you know, kind of was this, uh, it was this, uh, I want to say it wasn't maybe, did you feel it was true love? Did, did you feel it was a, a relationship or, you know, was it something that you or someone you were infatuated with? Um, initially, it was, felt like some first we were friends. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no, first she was my cat sitter and we became friends. And such the lesbian story, by the way. <laughs> travel with me. What? That's such the uh, traditional lesbian story, by the way. First we were friends. No, she was I my mean, cat sitter. Then she was my friend. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I'm just your average lesbian. Yeah. Um, 2.5 cats, half a dog, and a U-Haul. Um, we were, she was my cat sitter, and my cat, like, my cats both liked her, and my cats didn't like a lot of people, so that made me like her. Um, we became really close friends, and I asked her to travel to Indonesia with me on one of my trips because... I was going to have to travel um, on my own, and I'm, I didn't want to travel all by myself to Indonesia, so <laughs> she came with me. We got stuck there for in Bali and Paradise for, I think, like five weeks or something, long enough for me to develop a healthy crush, which uh, when I went back to Brussels with her, um, after she had transported some money from Chicago to the to Brussels, we ended up having an affair, which um, I actually thought was potentially true love. Mm-hmm. And we ended up getting a apartment together in San Francisco. We got the apartment together in San Francisco as friends and roommates. Um, but in Brussels, the apartment um, sort of turned into, you know, okay, that's going to be our home, honey bunch. Um, <laughs> but then she decided she wanted to, you know, I asked her to carry a bag of one of the stuffed heroin-laden bags back to the U.S., and she did not take kindly to that. I mean, it wasn't as it wasn't as depicted in Orange is the New Black, the series. Um, it was a little more complicated than that. And that's, I think that's, I, I've covered that in the book. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so she left me in Brussels with the um, understanding that I would be joining her in San Francisco as soon as I could um, extricate myself from this seedy world and awful circumstances that she no longer wanted to have any part of. And so we left it pretty much as see you, see you when you get home. Unfortunately, I never did get home. Next time I saw her was 
12 years later on um, at the federal transfer. Right, so, right, which you talk on. about in the memoir. And to me, when I got to that point, I really felt like, you know, was potentially true love, but with all these, uh, you know, forces against you. And I was hoping at the end of the book that, I don't know, you guys got uh, some opportunity or point to to kind of reconnect or at least uh, close the loop or, you know, what is it called you know, when it, when there's unfinished business? But it sounds like you never really did. And the next time you, you know, you really heard from Piper from that moment was the uh, the book, right? Yep. And then, of course, when I heard about the book, I couldn't contact her. And that was frustrating. And uh, I wasn't allowed to talk to the media. Um, I was never told, do not talk to the media. It was just made so complex to allow it that I decided to stay away from any kind of complexities, whereas where it, my freedom was involved. Um, we did finally get to connect, though. You did? So can yeah. can we talk about it? I mean, do you still feel like yeah. there's unfinished business, even though she's married and you probably have moved on? I mean, I know that you've had several relationships after um, yeah, Piper. There is no unfinished romantic business between Piper, Herman, and I. We are good friends. Um, we've made it through a horrifying tragedy that took 20 years to finally unravel. Um it was an emotional reunion. We cried. We basically told each other what millions of things had occurred since last. We had the luxury of sitting down and actually communicating with each other, with exception of our brief encounter in the Chicago MCCC. Um, and we were at the other. Now we were both in the light at the end of the tunnel, and it was wonderful. We had breakfast. Ironically, we met at a. Um, hotel restaurant at the Cincinnati airport, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> that is, that is pretty funny. So, I mean, I could sit here all day and chat about your book. I'd love to, uh, I feel like you're like, you know, close friend to me. And that's how wrapped up I got in the memoir and your life. Um, it, but you know, we're running out of time here. So I want to kind of go through, you know, what was true, what wasn't, uh, as far as orange is the new black and your memoir. Um, is it true that Piper did blame you, you know, for having to go to jail as far as uh, you and your testimony and kind of how that got her indicted? Yeah, she absolutely blamed me and rightfully so. I did give her name to the feds, but they, you know, again, that's the way that it's portrayed in the series is an absolute oversimplification of the reality of that circumstance. I did not give Piper or anyone's names with the intent of reducing my sentence or hurting them. It was an attempt to um, make sure that the authorities got to them before the drug lord got to them. And it, it, while incarcerated, you know, obviously Orange is the New Black has the storyline that you guys end up in the same facility. Uh, you, you did end up in the same facility, but did you guys hook up? Oh no, no. We were we ended up in a really awful yucky facility for about five or six weeks together while we were both testifying against the one and only co-defendant who actually went to trial instead of just pleading out, um, pleading guilty. Um, 
And no, we didn't hook up. We had a reunion. It was me, my sister, and Piper against the world. Um, we were in a very small, cramped, dirty, um, poorly run facility that was full of either, you know, people like us just there to uh, for some kind of court date or there for a mental evaluation. So it was an interesting array of um, inhabitants that we were crammed in with. So our reunion was pretty much limited to watching uh, CSI playing gin rummy 50,000 um, spades and every other card game you can imagine. Yarn bingo. Um, <laughs> a library you could fit in my hall closet. Um, and just weird little incidents. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it was not. It was not the oranges, the new black, hot sex in the chapel. Well, that's not to say that there is not sex in prison. That was my next question. I mean, well, did you have? Maybe it wasn't with Piper, but do you have hot sex in prison at all? I had. I did. I, mean, two <laughs> <lovers. laughs> I had two lovers sequentially, not at the same time. Um. And the difference, the major difference is, is that you, you, you know, in Orange is the New Black, it's like a lesbian bed and breakfast. Everyone's having sex everywhere openly, sitting on each other's beds. Um, in, and you can't do that in, in the real pokey. In the real pokey, if you get caught on someone's bed, you're going to get handcuffed, humiliated, and dragged to the shoe. Oh. It's a 205 shot, which is a series 200 shot. And rioting is also a series 200 shot. Oh, that's that's serious. Yeah, very serious. So yeah. that's that's a major difference. Right, right. Well, you know, that's the other thing I wanted to, to talk with you about before I let you go. The reality of women who are incarcerated. Obviously, Orange is the New Black has somewhat glamorized it, made it seem like it's it's relatively safe. Um, but I don't think that those are the uh, realistic conditions when women are in prison, right? No. I mean, unless Danbury's got something going on that I missed out on, um, no, that's not the way it is. And and I think it's bordering on socially irresponsible to portray it that way. It's, you know, I had a young woman actually write me on Facebook um, talking about her, her decision-making process on whether or not she was going to break the law. And I'm like, oh, my, are you kidding me? And... I had to write her back, like, this is not the way it is. This is, you're going to ruin your life. You want to be humiliated and made to feel like um, the dirt, the crud on somebody's shoe is more important than you, then go for it. But if you're off to look for an orange is the new black experience, they don't exist. Mm. I've got two last questions for you while we're on that topic. Uh, Orange is the New Black and also your memoir touches on the privatization of, uh, you know, the jail system or what we should call the prison system here in this country and and the many things that are wrong with it. You would at least agree that the show, if it it has done one thing, um, it's, you know, bring this issue to light, right? Yeah. It has definitely the cultural phenomena of Orange is the New Black has amplified the conversation that needs to occur to the nth degree. Mm -hmm. And 
now what we need to do is make sure that that conversation stays on topic and on target and doesn't get lost in, I don't know, some kind of like bizarre parallel universe where it has absolutely no um, redeeming quality or redeeming effect on the world that we're in. Piper is like a champion of reform at this point. Mm-hmm. And I would like that, you know, instead of orange is the new black accidentally being a um, amplifier of sorts and focusing so much on the entertainment, I realize that their primary responsibility is to their bottom line. And their bottom line requires that they have a wide viewer audience. And so a accurate betrayal of um, our prison system would be a pretty boring show. Yeah. Um, it would be nice if they at least kept that within their sights and did not relinquish themselves of all responsibility there. Mm-hmm. Again, I could go on and on and on, and even I wanted to touch on season one, two, and three, but maybe that'll be a, a second interview and we continue to talk about your memoir. My last question for you today has to do with the fact that I think after reading your book, it was just a, you are a great example of turning things around for yourself, no matter, you know, how old you were when you got out of jail, you know, you're now in software and in tech and, and doing well for yourself, although you put yourself through hell. You know, what would you, you you shared a little example of a young person who, you know, you tried to turn their life around. But for all of those out there who just, you know, might be lost or something or we're young or we make decisions that affect us for the rest of your life. Do you have any uh, words of wisdom for those out there? I do. Whatever it is you're contemplating, don't do it (laughs) unless it's constructive and positive and not against the law. Um, you know, the laws, you may not agree with the laws and they change and they shift on a regular basis. Just make sure you're not breaking the ones that exist when you're breaking them and don't kid yourself. It's not worth it. Pay attention to every little decision you make because little decisions are the ones that get you. They Mm. add up to boom, you're on a slide and you can't change anything. Ugh, I, uh, that resonates with me so much. Not that I'm thinking of breaking the law, but, you know, there are decisions that I make that <laughs> I don't think are as ethical. Cleary Walters, everyone, the author of Out of Orange. You should definitely grab a copy. We didn't cover the entire, you know, memoir. So as you can tell, it's very entertaining, but it's also real. And we can all, you know, take something from the memoir. So it's available out there. Get a copy today. Clary, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you for having me. I swear, I could go on and on. I love that book so much. I mean, it was just, it was kind of crazy that that was her story. She just seemed so down to earth and so, you know, next door. And uh, But I love that, you know, her story is a turn your life around story. And now she's an incredible spokesperson for, you know, don't make that bad decision. And also... Having been incarcerated, making these big mistakes, she's turned her life around so much that she's now this big software something something. It sounds like she's in tech and doing well. I think her story is just as interesting, but it she really is an Alex Voss. It's <laughs> right. so loosely connected, right? But her book, I'm excited to read it, and I think she could actually have her own show. I know, like she the, could have the, her own fictional character that really yeah. is Clary Walters. I do think that you know the Alex Vaz or or Clary Walters, 
has a much more interesting story than what Genji Cohen has developed for Laura Prepon. Um, because, you know, Alex Vaz in Orange is the New Black is kind of weak. And from what we, you know, she tries to, what we gather from it is that she's Piper's sex, you know, whatever. Right. But other than that, what do we really know about Alex Vaz in Orange is the New Black? Yeah, they don't go into, I mean, I'm halfway through the third season, but they don't really go into her backstory no, as much almost, as others. It's almost like she, they were like, okay, you know, Laura Prepon is hot and she's going to play Alex Vaz and she's going to play the love interest of the main character, Piper, you know, what, I don't know, Kerman. Uh, and uh, other than that, she's dumb enough to go in back into jail and out and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, the two, I guess, if you consider them the main characters, they're not the most interesting. No, no, they're not. But maybe Genji Cohen is something much more in store for us. I mean, hey, if you look at Weeds, um, you know, that went, what, eight seasons or so, if mm-hmm. not more? I think more. I think, I think so. I think yeah. more, yeah. But anyway, pick up the memoir Out of Orange by Cleary Walters. I promise you, you will not be bored. And in, in some parts of you, you'll be, you'll like, you know, just not believe that, that this is the Cleary and that was her experience. But there is a good story out of it. When we come back, we'll play an interview we did with human rights activist Cleve Jones. I think that, you know, hearing someone like him talk about the future of the LGBTQ community and what the history was like is extremely important. Even though we have marriage equality, the fight is not over. So stick around. Don't go away. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude, um, just to entertain people. And so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity. And, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for Spotlight you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to the best of The Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. And now, back to The Michelle Miao Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Monday, July 6th. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. Jax, our producer, is in studio. We have an interview that we want to play for you. We did with uh, we did an interview with Cleve Jones. He's a human rights activist. He was a friend of Harvey Milk and lived uh, through this time and where Harvey was his mentor. And he's also has brought tons of awareness to the LGBTQ community, especially during the gay liberation movement. So let's head into that interview. We're taking a look back at the last 45 years of the LGBTQ movement, as well as San Francisco Pride or Pride celebrations here in the city. And I couldn't think of anyone more perfect or more historic. I mean, history <laughs> is himself than Cleve Jones. Cleve, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you just finished this amazing audio podcast tour that I had the honor of going on. And uh, I thought that you would be also so perfect for joining us here and going back the last 45 years because that tour pretty much took me back yeah. to, to 1972, I think. Mm-hmm. They did a beautiful job with it, I think. I'm very proud of it. It's detour.com, and it's a new, uh, a new venture. But when I heard about it, I thought it was a genius idea, and I was delighted to participate. Yeah. So, like I said, the tour starts out, you know, uh, in ni- early 1970, uh, 1970s. You came here to San Francisco at the young age of 18, the tender age of 18. And you mentioned that you, you, were, you lived in the streets of the Tenderloin, Polk Street, which pretty much was the queer neighborhood before the Castro, right? Yeah, the, uh, the, the center of the known gay universe at that point in history was Polk Street. That's kind of interesting because if you go to Polk Street today, there's not the slightest trace of what we were there. And it was on the edge of the Tenderloin, which had a lot of uh, very cheap hotel housing. And I was pretty much a street kid for the first year or so of my life in San Francisco. Now, you know, Pride it started in uh, 1970, but it wasn't called Pride here in San Francisco. It was the Christopher Street Parade, um, and the Hair Fairies and the Tenderloin were the ones who organized a protest. Now, by the time you got here, it, did you celebrate Pride or, or participate <clears throat> in the parade? Yeah, as I, I believe it was called Gay Freedom Day. Gay Freedom Day. The first year that I was here. And it was a relatively small march, still very hippie, a lot of long hair, and uh, none of the commercialization that we see today, absolutely not at all. It was still a very radical uh, demonstration of sexual liberation and solidarity with the larger global movements uh, for peace and social justice. In uh, the 70s was a very turbulent year for the LGBTQ rights movement, the gay liberation movement, right? And obviously, um, I think Harvey Milk even came here from New York mm-hmm. in the same year that you moved here, which is yes. really special. And you guys became friends, and he, yeah. your mentor, as we know. Uh, what, what year did you actually meet Harvey? 
You know, I wish I could remember because at first I didn't really take him seriously. He was, you know, every neighborhood in our city has a character or two that stand out. And he was certainly a character and I liked him and I thought he was funny, but I didn't really take him very seriously as a political leader. Also at that point in my life, I was not interested in participating in the Democratic Party, uh, electoral politics. I was much more to the left. but. Um, you know, he was very kind to me, and in 1975, I set out hitchhiking around the world, and I wrote back, and I happened to be in Spain for Spain's first Gay Freedom March. It was the, the, the Generalismo Franco had died the year before, so Spain was emerging from decades of fascism, and gay people began to organize for the first time, and I was there, and the, they were attacked by the police, and it was this insane riot, and I wrote an account and I sent it to Harvey and he got it published in one of the gay newspapers. And then when I came back, he was beginning his third and final campaign when he finally won uh, his seat on the Board of Supervisors. And by then I was working closely with him uh, on that and on the campaign against the Briggs Initiative, Proposition 6. Speaking of the Briggs Initiative, 1978 was a very significant year, uh, probably extremely personal for you, but significant in that um, you know, we were fighting the Briggs Initiative. Uh, Harvey Milk had participated in the Gay Freedom Parade uh, as an out gay elected official. Yeah. And I think he was riding in a Volvo, which wasn't a convertible. <laughs> um, and he had this sign with him. I remember this iconic photo. I remember seeing it. And it, it was the Chronicle, I think, that ran it. Uh, but also, you know, for the Gay Freedom Parade, it was the first year that we got money from the city to do this. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it was actually Harvey Milk's last parade ever yeah. since he passed away that same year. It was also the first year of the rainbow flag. Gilbert pa- Baker uh, created the first rainbow flag that year. I helped him dye the fabric at the old uh, gay community center at 330 Grove Street. But it was a pivotal year and very important. And I think one of the really kind of remarkable things looking back at it is that the Briggs Initiative, and for your viewers who may not know what that was it was a, a proposition, a statewide proposition, to make it illegal for LGBT people and their supporters to work in any capacity in any public school district. Right. So it was a really terrifying uh, proposition that would have, you know, inflicted extreme harm on large numbers of people. We didn't think we had a chance in hell of defeating that thing. But we won it. We won statewide in California without million dollar media buys because we had an army of grassroots volunteers who went door to door every precinct in every county of this state and introduced themselves and came out and told their neighbors and colleagues and coworkers and friends and families and said, I'm gay. I have gay people in my life. Don't vote for this. It will hurt us. And we won statewide. And you know, we didn't win another statewide battle for 34 years. Right. Wow. Well, we'll get we'll get to today <laughs> very quickly. Um, but in your audio podcast tour, you also take us through the 80s. You being the founder of the AIDS Memorial Quilt, as well as the San Francisco AIDS Foundation, as we head into the 80s and looking back at you know, the Gay Freedom Parade and Pride and our movement, um, you know, in the audio podcast, it, it was very sad. You took us to some places in the Castro, and I remember in which you said, hey, look up this block and imagine all your friends on this block who passed away. I don't remember yes. what that number of, of people that you had mentioned. 
I think it's very hard for young people today to imagine, just as it would be hard for anyone who hasn't been in a war zone to imagine the horror of that. But in my neighborhood, De Castro, by 1985, we'd already lost 1,000 people. And for 10 years following that, we would lose between 1,500 and 2,500 people a year. Uh, I myself lived for 10 years with the knowledge that I had the virus before any treatment was available. And during that time, almost everyone I knew died. And then I made new friends, and they died. And then I made new friends, and they died. So the pride parades then were, uh, you know, they were more than a celebration. It was sort of a, a demonstration of our commitment to get through this. And the parades then were really dominated by the, the caregivers and the service providers, and also people who themselves were living with AIDS. I remember reading an, an article in which they said even, you know, somewhere in 1983 or so, um, they thought of not doing a parade because it was so sad and we were losing so many people in our community, but also that heterosexuals were ho so hysterical about the HIV AIDS virus being, you know, public, in public with other mm -hmm. gay people. Do you remember hearing that at all? Oh, I unfortunately remember all of it. and. I think that, by and large, the response from our community was very strong and right on and on target, but uh, there were tangents, there were distractions, there were people who were very confused. And I think the most dreadful part of it was the way the right-wing Republicans, so-called Christians, jumped on this as uh, an excuse to hate. There was a Republican convention in Long Beach and during one of those years where they actually had bumper stickers that said, AIDS, it's killing all the right people, meaning, of course, homosexuals, black-skinned Haitian immigrants, hemophiliacs, uh, and IV drug users, sex workers. It was very much a disease and remains to this day very much a disease of marginalized populations. And it was most certainly fueled profoundly by this mix of homophobia and racism. The Commonwealth Club is a unique organization that brings together people from a variety of backgrounds to explore important issues as a community. Sooner or later, everyone worth hearing comes to our stage. From Marga Gomez to Richard Chamberlain, from James Hormel to Kate Kendall, leading thinkers, activists, politicians, and artists have come to the Commonwealth Club of California. Ted Olson and David Boyes came here to discuss their winning legal strategy for same-sex marriage. Jason Collins talked about gay athletes. The Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence discussed activism and good works. Actor and director Rob Reiner explained how he got Hollywood behind same-sex marriage. Barney Frank described what it's like to be gay at the highest levels of Washington. From healthcare reform to transgender rights, from immigration to gay-owned businesses, it's all at the Commonwealth Club. And that's still just a portion of the 450 programs we present every single year, with new programming nearly every single day. Be a part of the conversation. Learn more at commonwealthclub.org, download our free app in iTunes, and join us in person the next time you're in San Francisco. The Commonwealth Club of California puts you face-to-face -face with today's thought leaders. listening to the best of the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. 
And now your host, Michelle Miao. It's Michelle Miao. You're listening to The Best Of Show. We're replaying some of my favorite interviews we've done this year. And even looking into the 90s and looking at some of the photos from... Um, I think now at this point it's it's changed its name to the International San Francisco Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender <laughs> Parade yes. Celebration, uh, or what we know as today San Francisco Pride. Um, what do you remember most about the 90s and and Pride and and celebration? I, I feel like we were still you know a depressed community, but uh, mobilizing now to also be vocal about such issues like marriage equality. Well, the 90s, the first half of the decade, was uh, horrendous. Uh, and it's important to remember that effective treatments for HIV didn't reach the general public until about 1996, 1997. I myself got ill in um, 1993, was very sick all through 1993, 1994. Which is a slander against vodka right. tonics. Uh, uh, the and it was life changing. You know, I had 20 T cells, and then suddenly I was up to 350 T cells. So, towards the end of the 90s, we began to see this hope emerging, and I think that the community's focus on marriage equality over the last several years, uh, and certainly since Prop 8. Uh, I think it's rooted in our experience with AIDS. And during that time, you saw devoted couples who had been together for years or decades caring for each other as one of the partners got sick and died. You saw our extended families uh, taking on incredible burdens of caregiving. You saw our lesbian sisters setting aside their justifiable mistrust and frustration with many gay men to take the lead in, in providing the services and uh, uh, the blood drives and all the work that was done there. So by the end of, the, of that decade, I think we had proven that the notion of an LGBT community was real. It wasn't a theory, it was real. And that now we had survived the most horrible test that could have been ever imagined. We had survived it and we'd gotten through it. So I think there were, uh, it changed our minds. And that whereas before the epidemic, we'd been willing to accept fractions of equality, where we'd been willing to accept uh, partial rights, mm -hmm. it changed. And then by 2008, it had changed to the point where people were saying, you know, to heck with compromise, to heck with domestic partners, to heck with partial rights. We want full equality guaranteed by the federal government. And here we are in 2015. The theme of this year's San Francisco Pride celebration is equality without exception. Um, you know, you probably remember this, and of course you do, right? Unions had organized to support the LGBTQ community against companies who are hurting us, such as Coors. I yes. remember Pride banning Coors like forever. Yeah. And in 2015, we have companies who are now fighting politicians and religious leaders in something called the Religious Freedom Bill, and which now the community will have to face even if the Supreme Court makes its final decision that you know state bans on same-sex marriage are in fact unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get your perspective 
you know, you you fought in the days when um, unions, you know, fought side by yeah. side with us, and now companies are fighting with us. How does that make you feel? Well, uh, you know, it's extraordinary to see what's happened in my lifetime, uh, definitely. Uh, and I'm very glad you brought up the unions. I work for a union. I work right. for Unite Here, which is an international union representing hospitality workers. Um, I worked with Howard Wallace, uh, Morris Kite in LA, Harvey Milk on the Coors boycott, which was an AFL-CIO boycott of the Coors Brewery, very much involved with the Teamsters, the most unlikely union to think of the LGBT community partnering with. but. That was very important. That alliance was strengthened by the Briggs Initiative when we worked so closely with the teachers. And yes, we are seeing corporate support. Um, we're seeing it because it's good for their bottom line, and nobody should have any illusions about that. We are a powerful economic force in this country, and they want our money. So uh, it's a good marketing decision on their part. But you know, even after the Supreme Court ruling comes down, or by the time this is broadcast, perhaps we already know, but even if we win marriage equality, there's going to be a lot of loving couples in a great many states who, after their ceremony, will post their photographs on Facebook and Instagram and go to work the next day and be fired because there is no job protection. When you look at the trans community, the, the numbers are even worse. You know, huge issues with employment rights. So uh, my union and many others, but uh, I happen to know the stats on my union. We are protecting, we did a, a survey uh, of all of our local affiliates and we learned that our union through negotiated contracts, the collective bargaining agreements, are winning job protection for LGB anti in deep red states that are do voting Republican, places like Arizona and Texas and Georgia, uh, Louisiana, we're winning those protections through uh, union contracts. And I think that's important for people to remember because in 2016, I don't think the House of Representatives is gonna change hands. So I don't think we're gonna see ENDA, even a comprehensive ENDA, is not gonna get passed in 2016. Last question for you, and I'm going to reflect on the very, uh, near the end of the tour for me, you, for any participants who take the tour through the Detour app, and it's the Castro with Cleve, which, by the way, it's not really all about the Castro. It's like a walk through history of our movement, the LGBTQ movement. You force us to look up and recognize the LGBTQ flag. Um, this flag, so significant to our community, is now expanded to include some other flags in our community, like the transgender community. Um, you know, what do you, what do you? see for us as far as the future goes. You just mentioned that you know there's still a lot for us to fight, but mm -hmm. especially if there's a message for the young in terms of inclusion within our community and our passion and our will to continue fighting for equal rights. I think our greatest strength is our diversity. <clears throat> we as a people exist within every population. We're born into every color of skin. We're born into rich and poor families, people of all different faiths or no faith at all, people of a wide range of political ideologies. And I have always believed that that might just be what makes us special, what might just be our potential to build bridges and solve problems and move all of us forward. Harvey Milk was never just about gay people. He saw what we were doing as part of that larger struggle against war, against racism, against poverty. He loved kids. He cared about senior citizens. So when I look at my community and I, and I reflect upon our movement, 
I think that's what we should be about, is using the fact that we exist in all these different types of families to try to bring our country and our world to a better place. Cleve, thank you so much for giving us a tour uh, through the last 45 years of our movement and as well as Pride celebrations. Again, Cleve has just completed his audio podcast. You can download the Detour app and select the Castro with Cleve and take the tour, please. You have to. People are coming to San Francisco for Pride. That's the only thing you should do before you party. <laughs> Thank you so much, Cleve. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can catch the Michelle Miao Show Monday through Friday, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices Network. Tune into the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.